To ship, of course. It's that time again, time for Build Engineering DevOps Release Management and Everything in Between. Welcome to the Ship Show. I'm your host, Paul Reed, Sober Build Eng on Twitter and at SoberBuildEngineer.com. Who else is with me tonight? EJ Saramella at Saramella on Twitter. This is Seth at Cheese Plus on Twitter. This is Sasha at Sasha underscore D on Twitter. And this is Yusuf at Build Scientist on Twitter. How's everyone doing tonight? Great. Awesome. Fantastic. Super. Uh, but as Sasha, we wanted to mention, because we talked briefly about this in the last show, FlowCon is coming up November 1st here in San Francisco, and you're speaking at FlowCon, aren't you? It is. I am speaking at FlowCon on, oh, you know, stuff. I can't actually remember, this. <laughs> I can't actually remember what I'm talking about. Let's see but the, the abstract is up on the website, and I'm sure going to write the talk long before the actual <laughs> Long before. Well, yeah. Hours and hours before. <laughs> hours and hours before. The, no, we will link to it in the show notes, but the title is Configuration Management with stability in your pipeline. So I think you're going to talk about stability in the pipeline. I think I'm actually going to talk about why your dev environments need to match prod or you're stupid. <laughs> well, there you go. There you go. Not, not, not oh my God, amen. <laughs> yeah, not, and not then um, actually I think they're trying to arrange a, a meetup presentation for me too while I'm there and I may actually be teaching some chef class too. We'll see. Nice. nice. I'll be there the whole week. Oh, and we mentioned this in the last show. Chip Show listeners can get a discount on FlowCon, keyword Chip Show. Uh, one word. And and speaking of Try conference, it's it's uh, conference season, Seth. Oh man, I got I got two conferences coming up actually. I just I just remembered. So I'm speaking at it's called Damn Data. Um, and it's a <laughs> I know it's a great you, title. You you had me at that conference title. I know Damn Data. It's actually being held in Antwerp. It's uh, one of my friends is putting on. It's, a, it's their first run at the conference, but it's a bunch of big data speakers, folks from you know Cassandra, HBase, Couch, I believe. I may be I may be missing one or adding one in there. Um, and then I'll be talking about React generally. And then as soon as I get back from that, I will be helping host. Recon, which is a distributed systems conference that Basho does. I won't be speaking, unfortunately, but I will be running around like a chicken with my head cut off, making sure the wireless and video streams are up. How so, are you going to drink doing that? Oh, oh, there are ways. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll be making sure there's bacon in the speaker room. Uh, yes, there will, will almost definitely be, well, there will at least be scotch. I know that. I don't, I don't know about bacon. I can't. Oh, you got a mad chef conf or pff, game over. Well, that's <laughs> that's kind of where we're aiming. We are going to have continuing a trend we've had in the past years. We're going to have baristas there, like, pulling espresso and doing like special oh, conferences. Nice. Yeah, basically. Well, I'm trying, yeah. We're just trying, to lure, sure. trying to lure Sasha to the conference. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. So lots of lots of conferences and stuff coming up in the next the next few weeks. How's your O'Reilly blogging going? Paul, you're logging for O'Reilly? Yeah. Yeah. I've got a couple articles up there now, and there's a couple more coming up before Velocity, and uh, they're basically covering my DevOps days talk was on the Asians of aviation, and so I thought we we would cover some more like technical topics because I didn't have a enough time to really talk about how they apply to like DevOps at all. So, well, that's cool because um, uh, I know that some people think that because you moderate these that you're actually not technical when you are actually <laughs> as technical as the rest of us on here too. So that'll be cool for you to actually have a showcase for that. <laughs> yeah, I, I wanted to actually, because to that example is so weird, I wanted to actually give like some actual real world examples of how does this make sense in your deployment pipeline. So that's actually the major content of, the, of those articles is, is more specifics because people always ask. So yeah, tonight uh, we have a special treat we're meeting with the release engineering and tools teams from Netflix, who often you hear about what Netflix is doing in the in the DevOps space. We're going to have a panel on that talks about what they do in those various areas. But first up, uh, news and views. Uh, Amazon announced about a week ago or so that they have a new command line interface tool. We'll link to the announcement in the show notes. I was always familiar with a command line tool also called AWS, but it was written by like some guy in Perl, and this is not that. This is like the official Amazon command line tool. EJ, I know you mentioned we were talking about before the show, you played with this tool or, or uh, have had a chance to use it. Yeah, so a lot of the stuff that we've done at Rapid7 has been to, to bake an AMI, and so when you cut an instance of that, there's a whole bunch of init D scripts that pop up and do some self-configuration, and what had stunk over the last couple of months was uh, we had to pull down different things like the EC2 package, and then the root 53 package, and then the S3 CMD package, and, all, and so now it's just this one download and it's a pip based install it's all python based it's just really slick really straightforward 
everything just works right out of the box. I was really, really happy to make this transition. So what was was awesome is like we had all this stuff working very flawlessly, and then the last couple of weeks I've done this backporting to use this AWS CLI where possible, and I've never been happier. It is is awesome to work with. Yeah, it took them five years to get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of sad. But, Did they just take on uh, what was already out there, the EC2 set, and? Uh... And sniff it up? No, I feel like... No, it, it has S3. Well, I know, but the EC2, all the downloadable tools for EC2, did they it's just take that and so sniff much, it up? It's so much more than that, though, Sasha. It's pretty much yeah. every one of their things where there there was just no... So before, like for S3, for example, if you wanted to do something where it was a large file and you wanted to upload in segments to S3, because otherwise if you try and upload this massive file, you just get, like, timeouts or delays, you get punted, right? Mm -hmm. This this S3 copy that's built into this AWS command line will do the segmented copy for you. And it knows, like, oh, you're going to try and transfer... 100 gig. I will break it up in these these chunks for you and, and transfer it for. You. It's it's so much better. So yeah, and, and they have it's on it's on GitHub. So. I was gonna say apparently it's open source too. Yeah, I I actually was I was I can't remember who I was talking to about this, but we were talking about the fact that the official Amazon supported tools were like some of them were Python and then some of them were Java, and it was because like two sets of teams wrote similar tools against the the Amazon API. Uh, but it looks like they're moving towards the Python stuff and kind of having this be the more official Amazon kind of tool chain for doing this stuff. But yeah, it looks like you can do all sorts of things, like create different roles and things like that. So yeah, spiffy stuff. Check it out. Next up tonight, we have a blog post from someone uh, entitled Why Open Heat Map is Banned from GitHub. And I guess what was interesting is that basically the, the story in the post is that the developer who, that, that's who wrote the blog post, developer of this tool basically put some data into the test cases for this particular tool. And it turned out it was the home phone numbers and off office numbers of like some company but that had been scrubbed but the numbers and name like first names matched or something like that so the point is he went through the process of trying to remove the private data from the repository but people had already forked it so basically GitHub just removed the entire project and all the forks which seems a little heavy handed but it's I thought I'd bring it up it's kind of interesting because on the one end you've got GitHub kind of doing this heavy handed thing when somebody was trying to do the right thing and on the other it kind of gives the example of when you throw stuff onto GitHub you basically basically should assume it is never going away. And if it's like personal private data or SSH keys and things like that, it can be bad news. That's why they actually say on their SSH key page, regenerate the keys, because once it's on GitHub, it's gone. It's out of your control. Uh, did you guys see this article? Yeah, it's interesting. Too bad, yeah, it's, really. It's weird that, uh, that they ended up kind of going that way, but I don't know if they just couldn't come up with a better solution or what. what? What was the point of the whole open heat map to begin with? I mean, was that just, was it kind of a feature or I don't... Yeah, describe uh, the project, please. Well, I guess it's, uh, so I just looked at it. It's The summary is turn your spreadsheet into a map. So I guess it was a way to like take a spreadsheet that you had some data for and then get it an interactive online map because of it. So I don't know, but yeah. Uh, we have a, for people that like uh, low-level compilers, libraries, and tricks and tips and things like that, I thought I'd link to a kind of humorous GCC bug. Apparently, the bug was that the memcopy implementation is optimized out as a call to memcopy. So you get this weird recursive thing. We'll link to the bug. Basically, uh, the, the compiler can sometimes generate calls to memcopy, memset, uh, and some of the other memory operations. And there should be a way that you can turn that off. Uh, apparently, in one of, there a bug in one of the GCC revisions for a caused the compiler to just optimize it out to a copy of itself. So I thought that was pretty humorous. There's a lot um, of annoyed people on that bug that's open. Yeah, yeah. What's well, it's, it's, it's rightfully so, but yeah. Yeah, no, it's one of those things that is just kind of, I don't know, funny when you see it. It's like, oh, I, you know, whatever. But, uh, yeah, I always like seeing tool chain bugs like that because a lot of us just assume the compiler works. We assume that to be <laughs> yeah, a working thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Last up tonight, EJ pointed us to a link on uh, My Startup Has 30 Days to Live. This is actually a pretty old link, and it's probably 30 days has already passed, so I wonder if this yeah, probably is actually... This. Yeah, but um, we'll link to it, uh, and specifically brought up the point around generalists versus technology specialists, and the, this post specifically is on the mistakes that this particular startup made. Uh, and EJ, you wanted to talk about it, uh, or bring it up, because it's interesting commentary on like DevOps and, and should you hire ops engineers and yeah, as specialists or generalists. Yeah, I'm thinking more in terms of like specialists, like a Java, I don't know, a UI expertise person or like a JavaScript or a... Somebody who only knows how to write code but doesn't know how to deploy it or, you know, make sure that it actually... Yeah, exactly, Sasha. Like, yeah. imagine if somebody is like, this person kicks ass 
sucks at Python but doesn't know anything else. Like, it, it, I'd be more happy. And the article is sort of, I, I want to just read one quote out of the article that sort of summarizes it for me. And I read this earlier, but it says, uh, when I built this team, I didn't build it with generalists and with people who could jump into any area of the business and get shit done. Instead, yeah. I built it with quality-minded perfectionists who built beautiful things. These people have their place, but not as early founders unless mm -hmm. they can hustle. Mm -hmm. yeah, so, yeah. The, yeah, exactly. So it's like, I'm looking at what Rapid7 did over the course of the last year, and they hired a bunch of people like, I'm not a Ruby dev. I'm not a chef guy. I'm not even somebody I think is like dev ops. I'm not a sysadmin. I can move the ball, and I can tear down big walls, and that's you what figure they hired. Stuff out. Yeah, yeah, that's they, the thing yeah, is, people hired, need to, you need people who can actually figure stuff out. Yeah, they hired across the board is. like that, and we cranked out this awesome product and an awesome workflow. And again, the the company is, uh, depending on when this <laughs> this uh, podcast is made available, like everyone is following suit. Like we are, we are moving comprehensively to the cloud based on the stuff that we did in Cambridge over the past year. So again, like if we had, if I was like a chef expert and I spent six weeks perfecting, you know, this completely um, Burke-shelved and vagrantized uh, way hey. to do things and like this person perfected some other like way to do Node.js and uh, instead of like getting something out there, iterating, listening to product feedback and, and moving the ball, like, I think it's really awesome. I think I feel like everyone that's part of this podcast, we are all generalists, whether you're willing to admit it or not. I feel like everyone that I've on this podcast can do a lot of different things, wear a lot of different hats, represent a lot of different angles, and uh, I feel like hiring these kind of personalities is what makes or breaks sometimes a, a launch of a startup. Well, yeah, so I think you're right. Eight I, plus plus one. <laughs> well, so so I. I I don't know that I, you know, I'll, I'll say it. I don't know that I totally agree. I think I mostly agree, but it, it comes into the, like, what's your definition of specialist versus generalist? So it's interesting when you were saying if you had the had someone who just took the time to do, like, the most perfect Berkshelf chef environment and it took six weeks and then the company died because they took six weeks to do that. My experiences have largely revolved around that second wave so what I mean by that is, yeah, you have someone that does a deployment pipeline or does deploy scripts, and we talk about this all the time. Like, they have some deploy scripts, and they, they don't work on every environment, whatever, but it was a developer that was wearing many hats and wrote them. And I feel like I'm a generalist in that I know a lot of, like, tools, but it's all in a sort of specific area. And so... I, I guess my point is I actually agree that when you have a startup that's like five people and you're trying to get a product out there and find uh, market fit for your product, yeah, that totally makes sense that you wouldn't want to hire a bunch of deep specialists and then kind, kind of try to make sure they fit together because that's probably not going to work. But that doesn't mean that specialists, either domain specialists, whether it be QA and maybe they know lots of automation tools and stuff like that, but QA or ops specialists or release engineering specialists aren't important in that second wave. Uh, and yeah, I, mean, I, I think, I think that message should be job role description when I'm talking about specialists. I'm, yeah, I'm when, thinking like, imagine the rel engine guy that can, like, I can do some Python coding, I can do some Ruby coding, I can do Bash or Java, anything. Like, I can do what it takes to get it done. I, I want to throw out another quote. Like, Jeff Bezos is on record saying um, something like, I'm going to paraphrase here because I don't have the quote directly in front of me, but if you wait around to get stuff perfect, you're going to get screwed. Like you're going to get blown out of the water. Somebody's going to beat you to market. So you got to do is like move the ball, get it done. You know? Sure. There's, a, there's, a, there's an even more classic quote. It's uh, perfect is the enemy of the good. I <laughs> that's think, funny because uh, I tweeted a, about that. Yeah, there's a, there's a, it's a classic. I, I remember running across it. It was a it was a talk about, it was a subversion project and they were actually talking about their, their development process and they said, uh, it's, it, it, I can't remember, it's the perfect is the enemy of the good or perfection is the enemy of the good. It's if you're, if you're going to spend so much, you're going to spend maybe 80% of your time optimizing for that last 10% or whatever it is, then you're, you're going to be burning cycles when you could have something shipped. Um, yeah, but it's funny. I, I brought I brought that. I actually tweeted that just earlier tonight because the flip side of that is I've heard that quote used for, "Hey, let's just do something," and I don't want to have to talk to anyone and come up with requirements. I just want to do something. So I, it's all it's all, like all of this is all. Well, yeah. Contracts. Well, pe people people are dumb though. I mean, that's <laughs> right, right. And I think as a general sentiment, yeah, that's good. And it's funny, EJ. The thing you were saying about being able to code, I think any release engineer should be able to do that, no matter what how big your company is. And I know that's not shared. I mean, 
especially in like big, large enterprise organizations. So you have the person who like, I run the Jenkins dashboard and that's all I do and I can't script to save my life, but that's what I do. Well, that's, I was going to say, that's, I think that's what, especially when, when you're talking about specialization, especially, you know, explicitly in this kind of context, it's, I am a Jenkins guy, like, and that's it. Like all right. I do is Jenkins. Like I've, I've been in that or like where, uh, when I was at you know at Game Studio, it was like I was the performance administrator, and that's like right. that was the specialization they were hiring me for. But everything else was, hey, I can do Linux ops, and hey, I can build right. server. It was it, it grows out of it. So like specialization, when it's like it's not just like oh I'm a Python programmer. It's like I'm a Django specific. Like I only right. know a framework, and that's yeah. where you get really dangerous. It's like well, we really need this guy, and you get that problem. I think it actually ties into you know recruiting as well. Like, because you have people going off a checklist, and they're like, do you know Maven? And, like, somebody's like, yeah, I'm a Maven expert. Now, they don't know anything else about the Java eco- ecosystem except Maven. And that's where you get that kind of, the, the, I guess, you get poisoned by hiring people who have too much specialization. Yeah, certainly. And I think, really, the people that you should be worried about is people that don't care about the system-wide, right, looking at the entire system, right? Because you can be doing Perforce or Jenkins, but if you don't know how it relates to what your developers are doing or how it interacts, then you're not as useful as somebody who does. So Yeah, and it, and it definitely and it definitely grows out, I mean, and, and more broadly, it's like, as I think you were touching on right there, is it's not just technical, too. I know, at least in my own experiences at Basho, it wasn't just strictly technical. It wasn't do you know chef? Do you know ops? It was, can you get up and give a talk? Or can you go out and do community stuff? It's, it's If you have somebody who's like, I'm just a C programmer, I'm only going to do network C code, and that's all I'm ever going to do, and I'm not going to look outside of my bubble. And then you get dangerous because those people can be they can be poisonous. They can be kind of like your 10x engineer, you know, and right. they, they're just tolerated because they're really good at this one thing, and that's not always a good thing for the company or for the team or for the product. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Well, we'd be curious what listeners think about this, so you can go ahead and join the discussion. But next up, we're going to have Netflix here on the show. Welcome back to The Ship Show. I'm your host, Paul Reed. So any conversation on DevOps transformation and DevOps culture these days will have at least a passing reference to Netflix. They're one of the quintessential case studies that's used when talking about how to use DevOps techniques to win. And so tonight we have a panel with us to talk about how they do release engineering at Netflix. Join me in welcoming Justin Ryan, Gareth Bowles, and Bruce Wong. Welcome, gents. Thank you. Nice. Thank you. So I wanted to start because you all have different titles, and you we were talking about this before the show. You all kind of see the release engineering elephant from different sides. So why don't we start a little bit with uh, how do you go through kind of your background, but also how you came to Netflix and what you do here. Sure. Um, this is Justin Ryan. I am a senior software engineer on the engineering tools team at Netflix. I came here via a few other companies as a software engineer to co-work on build tools. Um, there are many people who come from build tools, who work on build tools, and I came to it as a programmer. So my approach is a little different when I look at them. I find myself testing my build tools more than others. It means I'm more frustrated than anything, but it also means I can really justify some of the changes. So when someone comes and complains about class path issues, I completely understand class path issues because I've been on that side of the fence. Or I can argue which version of JUnit you should use because I've used that version of JUnit, right. which is a really useful role and skill to have, um, I think, on a tools team, outward facing to, to customers, which are other developers. Sure, I'm Gareth Bowles. I also work on the engineering tools team along with Justin. Um, I came from a QA, release engineering, technical operations background, so I've kind of come in the opposite direction to Justin. Um, I'm more of a developer these days than I was in previous existences, so that's a pretty interesting perspective to have too. And I'm Bruce Wong. I manage a team called Playback Reliability. We utilize a lot of the tools that Justin and Gareth build, and we're kind of on the because we apply the tools that they use, we are some of their biggest customers as well as some of their biggest critics. And so, like we, whenever we deploy software, we have the risk of taking down the service for millions of users. So we have a lot of interest in making the tools work really, really well. So we can publish your cell phone number in the show notes if people have problems watching House of Cards. They can call. Are you that guy? <laughs> I, I've received a lot of text messages when Netflix goes down. <laughs> So I wanted to start, I mean, one of the obviously big things that we always hear about is sort of 
uh, Netflix culture and, and sort of even how that you can see it in the way the company is structured. And we were talking before that, Bruce, you're, you're kind of the consumer of, of what the tools team is doing in terms of, of that. Because he chooses to. So I think that goes right to the unique structure we have, which is freedom and responsibility. That's a word that we'll probably, phrase we'll use a bunch. What, one freedom thing? and responsibility. Freedom and responsibility. Okay. Um, the idea is in general we try and give employees as much freedom as possible, assuming that they also take responsibility for their choices. And this is seen throughout the organization, but in the case of uh, at least us and our tools, we try and write really good tools, but each team has the choice to use them or not. If you know, Especially if you're a .NET team and what we offer isn't very valuable to you. So as we write tools, we have to justify their use. If, if Bruce is one of our consumers, doesn't like the deployment tools, but he likes the build tools. He's perfectly free to go use the build tools and not the deployment tools, which means we have to keep our tools extremely relevant or people won't use them. But that really shifts it. So there are a few teams that really will go off and try something completely new and different. And if it's interesting enough and other people hear about it and it gets socialized around, they might swing back to us and ask us to socialize it back out or maybe clean it up. So we might get a few thousand lines of Python code and then turn it back around as a few hundred lines of beautiful Java Groovy code that's unit tested back out to other teams. So when something like that happens, do you find too that it goes kind of through a, uh, I use the word standardization, but people hate that word because it has a bad connotation. But this idea that uh, as release engineering teams, we often have a perspective that one team may not have, right? Because we're working with lots of different teams. So is that part of that process too? It's like, oh, if it did this one extra thing, then five other teams might use it. Do, do you, is that part of that kind of you making it better and unit testing it? Yeah, and I'd say so. Maybe generalization is a better term. So um, mm, when yeah. we pick a tool that yeah. a team has written, it'll have a specific use case for them, but we will usually add features to it that make it more generic. So it will be picked up by the organization as a whole, hopefully. It goes back to a value proposition. If what we're offering isn't valuable to those other teams, they just won't use it. Mm-hmm. And, and there's been plenty of there's been plenty of times where my team has utilized and picked and chosen some of the things you've written, and there are certain aspects that didn't meet our needs, so we chose to extend the tools to yeah. meet our needs. And I think as that got socialized and got around the organization, then we. You know, it's like, okay, how do we make this like fully supported and productize uh, the, some of the practices we did? And that's highly encouraged that yeah. for Bruce's team or any team to go off and try something new. And, and if it works for them, great, and now we can try it out. We're not in a really good position to be testing out new deployment strategies because we don't deploy code very often. I mean, we're sort of isolated from that. Well, that's a very interesting structure that's actually becoming more common. But that didn't, I mean, I'm sure you both worked at shops where the release engineers were sort of the gatekeeper of that thing. And, oh, yeah. You know, Seth will talk about that on the, on the, the gaming side where it was like, he was the gatekeeper, but that's not that they've shifted that sort of responsibility out to to the, the actual teams deploying the service, is that yeah. right? Yeah, mm-hmm. and part of that because I've I've heard uh, talk of it, so it's really a to be able to do that. It's sort of a collection of services. I mean, it's a smaller collection of services as opposed to something like a game patch, where it's this big kind of binary blob. Is that from a architectural standpoint, kind of how that stuff is structured? Yeah, I mean, when we went to the cloud, there was a much larger emphasis on service-oriented architecture. Mm-hmm. So services calling services, and at any, each point, they could scale up or scale down. Or um, could go, go down. Yes, and yeah. be resilient mm-hmm. to that. Um, yes. and, and being okay on both sides. You know, Try not to go down, but if it goes down, that's okay. You should be resilient to that. Hence right. the anti-fragility messages that we right. have with the chaos monkey and stuff right, like right, that. Right. So that definitely helps people upgrade bits and pieces, but it does add a lot of complexity. We definitely see teams who, they want to upgrade, but they have teams using the old server so they keep old APIs available for longer and stuff. But the more key message I'd say in that, to what we were just talking about, is that we as a team, uh, engineering tools, do our best to not be gating to them. So when a developer writes a line of code and going out to production, they shouldn't have to go to any other team. I mean, hopefully our, our tools aren't down, but in general, we're not gating to them or their team. I, I think to provide a little historical context here, like when streaming was first built, it was a very large data center based application. It was still a service oriented architecture, but in those times, a different team did the de- deployments, everything was scheduled so that no team, no two teams would deploy at the same exact time. So it was more traditional sort of, there was an ops team that did a thing and developers did their thing. Correct. Yeah, run books and stuff. Right. 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 And then when we did the cloud cloud migration, uh, we kind of went to this world where, okay, you own your service and they should function 
whenever, like all the time, and you should be able to deploy to them whenever you want. And so now we have uh, we have deployments and pushes going on at all the time that are happening concurrently, that are happening, that are colliding. I mean, I, I actually remember a there was a push that I was doing once, and I just so happened to do the push at the exact same second as another service, and we brought we brought Netflix down for for a bit, and we both we all got it on the did. phone, <laughs> we all got a phone, and I was like, I'm pretty sure this is my fault. I I pushed it this is the exact second, and the other guy, on the other team was like, No, I'm pretty sure it's my fault. I pushed it that second too, and we had to kind of hash it out and roll things back and. It's kind of one of those, it reminds me of, you know, the, the old kind of comedies where it's like, no, you go first, no, you, no, you go first. <laughs> right. uh, which is interesting because you, you've used a couple of words, you, you, you've used socialized a number of times, right? And I know that's part of the culture perspective, but it's interesting that you use that word as opposed to, well, we've published this thing. Uh, you know, socialized involves actually talking to people and having some sort of... Well, just because you publish something doesn't mean people subscribe to it. Right. Well, at some companies, it sort of is, right? They publish it and that's the the law. They have to do it that way. Right. And I think that's what, it's so, it's so far from our minds now that that's the way it is. Right. Right. There. So the one, the other thing that I thought was interesting when you talk about it, because you, you were talking about, you know, if, if we don't socialize it, people just won't use it. It sounds like it's really a marketplace for different teams to sort of do their work and prove that the tools that they're writing are useful. Right. Is that, is that sort of, does it, does it, it sounds like that externally. Does it feel like that internally? I'd say they're competing with other open source projects, right? So if they want to go off and use Node.js, there's a lot that's going to go along with, okay, well, you got to get RPMs that can install into our boxes. you got to have a build for them. You have to, you know, they, they've got to have responsible, reliable build process that goes along with it. And they take it upon themselves. So as much of it is a well, marketplace. they don't have to have that, right? Fair enough. But they, can like, pay the ta- they, they can pay manual taxes. They have to be really close, though, not to come back to us and say, hey, I'm having, you know, it's right. not working for me. But okay, well, this is the responsibility part of freedom is you chose to use this this new framework that we just haven't had time to come up to speed yet you know maybe we will but just not right now mm-hmm. so we're competing with other projects and processes out there but hopefully there's so much knowledge around here how it works and the argument that well we know that this works and if I just put it in place I'm done is pretty compelling so to the value proposition there is a lot of value to using our tools out of the box right. but if someone wants to break out of that mold they have to put good speed. Yeah, and they just have and to let put us in how that works out. But those are the passion engineers, right? These, right? these these people come in and maybe they're new and they're like, oh, I just I really I love Maven. I have to have a Maven build, which we we don't have here. But they're so passionate that this is the best thing for them, and they'll go for it and they'll learn to ins and outs and they'll go, okay, that was nice. We want to come back to, into the fold. Or other areas where they'll say, no, we're working with a third-party vendor, and they use Maven, and it's fantastic for us, so we're going to keep using it. And so we'll try and help. You know, we have some background in the area, but it's not our, our expertise, and we have to balance our time. So does that mean that structurally a lot of the teams that are doing a service may have uh, someone who is 50 or 80% kind of engineering tools, but more in the trenches of their specific team, or no? Depends on the team. It varies team by team. <coughs> yeah, Bruce probably has that. Yeah, like I think for my team, we're one of the larger teams. Uh, We handle uh, the larger team encompassing my team is called Playback Services. Mm -hmm. And so we actually have a team, which is my team, Playback Reliability, to get in the trenches for those nitty-gritty cases and integrate when we can and when we when there's something that's missing or something we need like we're we're there to like augment the the tools and stuff like that or even stand up our own tools but a lot of teams are not that large and so they don't have dedicated resources to that so it sounds too that 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 would be an incentive to use the existing stuff but there's still an interesting feedback loop and that's a big part of devops this whole idea of communicating and having tight feedback loops that they would come to you and say listen we need your tool to do these extra X things, how, how does the... Yeah. I think we do have a, a... We have to push out tools that lower the threshold to getting things out to the cloud so low that a team of one person could do it. I mean, I really think that is sort of one of our goals would be team of one person could put together an app, publish and deploy it, never even talking to us, absolutely, but have it work like any other Netflix app. And that's absolutely true. But they couldn't do it too much if they were trying to do it all by themselves. And well, and I, you actually do that as sort of a new hire boot camp, right? That's your your thing is is you put them through here, develop this app, and deploy it on our infrastructure out to the the Netflix cloud for whatever definition of that is. And you've done that's your like first thing, right? If you use our conventions, it really is simple. It's it's when you go off. 
you know, off the beaten path or something. Off like into that. the weeds. Yeah. Yeah, but that's fine. That's that's we want them to be able to do it. We want the the simple to be simple and the hard to be possible. Right. That's the way I usually put it. Right. 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 So one thing I actually wanted to come back to because I was curious about this. You were talking about kind of the skill sets on your your on the engineering tool side. So for a lot of release engineering teams, I mean, you know, I've been doing this long enough that there's like there are other people that are writing, you know, frameworks or supporting whatever tools that the team has written. But then you also have the sets of people that are kind of more managing the D Jenkins dashboard or they're responsible for integrations or they're, they're basically doing things that it's depending on, they're, they're not programming. Do you have people that fill that sort of role or is that sort of one of those kind of transformations where it's like, hey developers, you're responsible for, we were talking about this in the last episode, your own merges and, and things like that. Yeah, it's, uh, I think in, in most cases we make Jenkins and the merging tools, etc., easy enough to use that. Again, like just as if people follow our conventions, they can do things themselves. So there's, we don't have a, I don't think there's anyone on the engineering tools team that doesn't code. I can't think of anybody. We have people who are more kind of um, sysadmin oriented and some that are more kind of front-end code oriented, but right. most people are pretty full stack. Interesting. Interesting. And there is an operation side. We do have systems that have to be up, like Jenkins or Asgard, as you might have heard. Yeah, it has to be up for most sure. people. Hopefully, it's not going out too much or doesn't require too much babysitting, but sometimes it does, and it can be pretty onerous to, to keep it up. And I could definitely see having a person who's dedicated ops, because it's very distracting going from the development of, of something to operations, because uh, operations can always win. Oh, it's going a little <coughs> slow today. Oh, I'll spend my whole day making it a little bit faster. Yeah. It's hard to, to to trade it off to, I'm going to make this one little new feature in the, on, on the dev side of things. So I'd like to see on our team where we sort of can switch off. So we definitely have two release engineers, or two people who can do Jenkins, or two people who can do merge stuff, and they can switch off the, those roles. So someone could be more operational-y this week, and someone could be more dev this week. So, so you don't have <coughs> just separate ops team supporting your or engineering tools teams and operationalized infrastructure, no, right? No. So that's actually kind of an interesting point, right? Because you're, you're talking about we all write code, but then you were saying people's trade-offs. So it's kind of like DevOps in a box, which is, you know, kind of <laughs> funny, right? But it's like your, your entire team has developers, but also ops people, and that's not a separate team. Mm -hmm. And you trade that off. We used to have, like, we called it like build guru and and things like that, where that role switches, because if you always give it to the intern, they pull their hair out and then, yeah. you know, scream out of the building after a month of doing that role, because it is hard. I'd say we've got developers that can do ops and ops people that can do development. And most people are fairly. Um, Would you say that's dimensional across the board or on your team? Especially on that team, yeah. yeah but I think in Netflix as a whole. But across well. the board, yeah. If you're going to have a developer or a small team of three people push things out to the cloud, if they don't understand the basics of Linux and putting some packages together and pushing to the cloud, all the, the teams can have a really hard time. So those teams are responsible not only for in the code and pushing it, but then keeping it operationally up. There is no person they hand it off to and say, wipe their hands and say, we're, we're done with it. So just like what they write, they have to support, and just sort of like us. If we're going to write Jenkins plugins, we have to support it. They go hand in hand. That's the freedom responsibility, I think. So, so does that mean that then each team is sort of responsible for like having someone kind of on call or to support that? Is that how that... Yes. And it's rotated yeah. out, like you were kind of saying. However they choose yeah. to work it. So something like Bruce's team, they could be of such size where they can have dedicated people who are, you okay. know, um, yeah. maybe dedicated more <coughs> to a opsy role or more devy opsy role. And some smaller teams, if there's if there's three people on it, they'll just rotate through, you know. Um, right. And my, my team's kind of a, it's a little bit different than most teams in Netflix. And the way we have things structured is playback reliability team is uh, we handle the business hours on call. Mm -hmm. And so that we allow kind of the developers to actually get some work done during business hours. But then nights and weekends, the developers are on call. So they do feel the consequences of their actions, mm -hmm. uh, especially at the, in the middle of the night or on the weekends. Well, so one of the things that I keep sort of running into, looking at this whole DevOps problem from lots of different angles, is this concept of like people having to level up. So if you're a developer... You don't know a lot about operationalizing infrastructure because you had an ops team that did that. If you come to an environment like Netflix, you're going to have to learn those skills. And that's part of, it. am I hearing that right, that, that everybody has to, whether, whether you're a release engineer that has a background that is light on coding and heavy on ops, you're going to have to level that up. And that's really how you see that is because as part of that freedom and responsibility, everybody has to be wide enough skill set that, the, that they are not dropped into some place where, oh, I'm supporting the, the service on a weekend and I don't know how to do ops at all. I don't know how to log into a, a Linux box to run <laughs> PS. Is that 
a, a fair assessment that everybody sort of has to level up to make this work? I'd say not everybody. Very clearly, each team, it's their own choice, right? If a, if a manager chooses to pick someone who's not strong operationally, they probably chose it for a different reason. You know, whatever works best for that team. So it's not trying to be a cop-out, but um, it, it does go a long way where each team sort of manages themselves each way. Now, clearly, someone who has that full breadth of things from operations that have is more valuable here and sure. for more why we hire more senior people. Well, so this this is kind of an interesting question. And the thing that's interesting, when we talk about sort of we have to justify that the tools are better or that managers may not have an ops person responsible for their service um, and they might have to justify that decision, it seems like that might cause a lot of interesting sort of politics at the management level. Not so much the engineering level. And what I mean by that is if you're constantly sort of having to, uh, I can imagine at, at companies with, with cultures, I've actually actually been parts of companies with cultures like this where that sort of justify your team's worth to us is really a budgeting thing. And then it gets turned into kind of backstabbing, not, not at the engineering level necessarily, but at the management level about like, we have to prove that you know we are worth as much. Now, I don't get the sense that, that Netflix is like that. And so how do you kind of protect against that? Because you can see it easily going down that road. I think everybody who's been in a company where they're watching the spreadsheet for the budget is worried about that. But I don't get the sense that that is happening now. Like, how do you kind of avoid that sort of? I have a quick, quick saying is uh, if you're, <clears throat> there are two types of companies, companies that focus on making money and companies that focus on saving money. And I truly believe that Netflix is a company that's focused on value and creating value, not on saving whatever they can save. No, no, keep on cutting. Yes. <laughs> I, I Admittedly, coming into the company, I was really amazed having, having been at previous companies where the CEOs were salespeople or marketing people. It was a change coming here, and I don't know if it was indicative of who our CEO is, but his background is as an engineer, right? So Reed had written Purifier, a C++ debugger. And I think it does carry through is when you maybe, not necessarily in the slide deck, but when you talk to him, he values engineers very heavily and understands their values. And I, I think you're not going to see a lot of cutting corners engineers because he understands the ups and downs of engineering and all that kind of stuff. Like when we go to the cloud, it came top down from him for the most part, and he fully understands what it means to be in the cloud. And I, I it's amazing to see, and other developers don't know, don't know what it means to be in the cloud, but having your executives understand goes a long way. And he fully understood the risk and the cost that he was taking to rewrite the entire stack yes. to do that. So I, I don't see many companies that rewrite the entire their entire stack of software just to, to migrate to a different solution. That doesn't necessarily create immediate value, but it creates long-term value, right? And well, consequently, you do see a lot of teams rewriting their code. I mean, I, I see it all the time, and they're like, yeah, that project was nice, lasted it six months, we're going to rewrite it, we're going to try again, do it a different way. Which at other companies, complete rewrites is a complete no-go. That's not going to happen. Here, it's, I, I find if, if the engineer feels like that's the right choice, you know, freedom of responsibility, they think they can get their job done, it's better, gonna be ma better maintained, they have a lot of leeway to rewrite it all over again. So that would imply that, that the executive summary that would be, you don't have a lot of technical debt, would you... I mean, or or would you say you do have some? I would I mean, say I would say we manage our technical. Ah, <laughs> uh, there's yeah, no, okay, I don't think yes. I don't think there's any company without technical right. debt. Sure, yeah, right. yeah. So that's a good distinction to make, and I guess that's that's a problem where you see with technical debt, right? Is is we just keep charging against that credit card and never <laughs> mm -hmm. never really pay it down. You know, the other interesting thing that came to mind when we were talking about Reed is also when you when you have executives that understand the strategy at a very sort of intrinsic visceral level, it's not driven by a VP of engineering informing the executive staff this is what they're doing and then if they leave for some reason then the whole sort of direction of the company is is driven by whoever they hire for that role next and tells <coughs> the execs and, and you know the CFO and the sales staff it's like oh we're going to do this and they're like yeah, yeah you know they don't really understand the technology so they're yeah, they're sure whatever whoever's that linchpin gets to make that decision it, it, it is actually more understood at the top and, and disseminated out that way I mean I so. think one of the things I definitely appreciate about uh, our culture is the notion of context, not control. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's not just the uh, e-staff or the leadership that has to understand like how engineers work, but it's also the engineers who have to understand how the business works, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think... Well, it's that everybody leveling up their skills, right? Mm -hmm. Right. If you're a developer that has never thought about, you know, the cost and trade-offs from a balance sheet perspective, 
Yeah, you have a harder time getting hired here. I mean, that's definitely part of the thing that recruiters look for is making sure you have a sense for the <coughs> business because that's, you know, you have to be involved in, in parts of that. And I, the context kind of controls uh, is a corollary out of the freedom of responsibility that comes up all the time. I can't speak to the executives per se. I don't interact with them a lot. But successful managers that I've seen here are the ones that I see around a lot or people are happy to work with. We're are still the, here. Are, yeah. <laughs> are the ones who set context for their employees, not control. That, I, I've, I've seen a manager come in and they, it's all control. They're trying to tell their team, like they do what they thought managers were supposed to do, which is tell their team what to do. And that's just an abysmal failure sometimes where the successful people are, because you're hiring senior people who know sort of theoretically know what they're doing. As long as you set context, they will do the right thing. And you've got to trust them that they're going to. If you're not going to trust them, that's a whole different ball of wax. That you well, and so one of the things, and I mean, I, I don't want to belabor the point a lot, but you know, you kind of made a little reference to managers that are still here. There does seem to be sort of the corollary to that is there are these things that we really believe, and that's actually what makes the company work. It's, it's what makes the culture work. It, it's what makes us productive. And you can buy into that and help us all succeed, or you can kind of swim upstream and it's not going to work out well. And we're fine admitting that. And, and one of the things that sort of came to mind, actually, I was thinking about, Reed, was the, I was trying to find this online and I can't find it, but the, uh, when the, the Quickster thing, I was trying to find the SNL sketch about it because it was so fun. And, but, but Netflix, like, very pretty, yeah, very quickly sort of was like, okay, we got it. That's not going to work. And they admitted sort of, that's not going to work out. Um, from a hiring perspective, it sounds like there's sort of a, and, and not in a like bad way, but it's like you need to understand this to be successful. And if you're not successful, there's not a big hang up about, sorry, like it's not working out. Is that, that's sort of the, the impression I've always sort of gotten. Is that, is that part of the, kind of the culture too? I mean, because it's hard to have those conversations, but it's actually, it's worse to have somebody who's not working out work for you yeah, for a year. Yeah, definitely. I think right? that's definitely so, part of the culture that it's known that, um, if you're successful, then you're fine. But if you're not, then it's better for everybody. Yeah. If you're not here anymore. Yeah. And, and again, it's as easy as possible. I yeah. Think we have a thing in the culture deck that says something like um, average performance gets a generous severance package, which is a <laughs> little bit over the top for me, but it illustrates the concept. But the right. other analogy in the slide deck is the, 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 the football team. That there's mm -hmm. only you know there's only <coughs> so many quarterbacks, there's only so many running backs you can have on a team. And if you have someone who's not the absolute best running back in that position, you trade them. I mean, at any other comp at any other in a sport, that's what you would do. Right. Um, you can't just keep adding running backs. You know, it's sort of a too many chefs in the kitchen, right? There's there is a cost to ha communicating with other people, and the more people you have that you have to communicate with, um, it can absolutely slow you down. Right. Um, right. But you, I, you know, it has happened um, absolutely without without a doubt where people have been sort of asked to leave, or but it's always very obvious they're just not jiving with the team or the culture isn't working. Well, and it's not every a surprise when that happens. I was well. The other <laughs> thing too, in every treatment of the topic that I've heard, it's never been. I thought you were going to say something when you brought up the football analogy, which you didn't say, which was like not everybody's going to be a running back, but some people might be a great defensive tackle. What, you know, whatever it is, right? And so it's not based on, uh, you know, performance isn't purely based on. There are these three numbers that have to be above five, and then you're fine. And if they're not above five, then you're screwed. It's not that. It is a more sort of nuanced and productive discussion. It's interesting too because it's kind of like an awkward conversation to have, but it's one of those things that at the end of the day. It is actually what makes things things work. So yeah, like. well, and uh, you know, I think if you're at the end of the day, would you rather lose your average people or your stars? And uh, I find a lot of people came to Netflix because of talent density issues in other companies. Mm -hmm. And so if we start having a talent density issue and start losing our stars, we're making the wrong we're making the wrong choice here, right? I think some of the things that we do would fall apart. There's many times where I'll work with another team and I'll say, okay, you, got, you guys got this? You know, yep, we got it. You know, I can, I can really trust them to take it and run with it because they also subscribe to freedom of responsibility. If I ran into a case where they didn't believe in that and they're like, and it becomes a blame game later, it, it all falls apart. If I can't trust them to, to do what they say they're going to do and they're going to follow through with it, it just makes my job a lot harder. Uh, it affects everybody else. Well, trust very much is one of those bad apple in the barrel issues that it does rot the barrel. And and two, you know, a lot of times you hear, and, and that is the other sort of refreshing treatment of that topic, freedom but responsibility, is a lot of people talk about developer freedom. We want to let them deploy and, you know, do their own testing and da-da-da-da-da, but then when it goes down, some poor schmuck, i.e. me or Sasha or whatever, gets the phone call, not the developer. So that that is, 
the responsibility part is very it's like one word after the freedom part right? it's it's yeah. right in the same sort of consciousness there so actually i met bruce at devops days and we had some great arguments and um, a lot of times when i was talking about kind of my past in release engineering we, we were talking about some situation and the answer was well you had a shitty culture right i, I can't help you you had a shitty culture i can tell you that in talking about like how to improve culture a lot of times people say, well, just do the Netflix culture. People kind of roll their eyes because they're like, that's like going from like a VW bug to the X spaceship. Like it can't, you can't just leap to the hot, right? And so I wanted to ask each of you actually, if there was kind of one bit of advice that was sort of actionable in a company culture that would start people down the road of a more positive culture, a more contact, not control culture, and a more freedom and responsibility culture. Like what is the one thing that you could tell someone, like focus on this one thing, and at least that will help you start on the road of, of fixing your culture. We've had plenty of people, you know, leave Netflix for whatever reason that they, you know, work. Maybe they're just they want startup, they have a different kind of company and stuff. But I definitely always hear from them going, "Oh my goodness, it's not Netflix." And so I know what they do, right? So there, there's a little anecdotal evidence of what people do do to try and, you know, express the, the, the culture and stuff. And the thing that I've pulled out of talking to them is is the the context, not control. And I use it all sort. Of, I, I'll use it with my daughter, you know, like when she does something. Like if she's going to touch, you know, going to touch a pot on the stove, most parents say, "Oh, don't touch that." But you don't know why. And it's all those. Okay, I don't understand the rules that are at play here, but I'm so I'm just going to do it so I can figure it out. But if I set context, if you when you touch that, you will burn yourself and it will hurt. Have a blast. Do whatever you need to. I mean. Hopefully child protective services won't come after me. <laughs> but it helps her so much more know the, where the decision-making process came from, from me telling her, don't do that. And I can see that in plenty of organizations, you know, when you create this, this, this wall and I throw stuff over the, the, the wall over to another team, if at least they can come with a lot of context about, uh, this might be risky because I made these changes, or could you maybe hold off because we're doing these five other things right now. It sounds so obvious that people give context to other people, but I find that they don't. They yeah. really, really don't, or they say it in, in different ways. So if you can really coin it as, just keep reminding yourself, context not control, um, which I even have to do here. People come to my desk and ask me to do something, and like, I just I remind myself, context not control. I set context. I'm working on these 10 different things, and it's going to be benefit the 20 teams. Do you have like a yoga team. room here that has context not control on the, <laughs> painted on the wall? I should do. I, do you feel like yoga? <laughs> I should. Gareth, do you have a... Do you have a um, yeah, Justin really nailed the main one for me there. I'd say probably try and think about how what your how your job affects the rest of the organisation as well. Kind of don't sit in a silo and work on things because they're cool or work on things because you think you've got a deadline to meet, but try and be aware of how what you're doing is going to benefit the rest of the organisation and so prioritise. You often hear that as like systems <coughs> thinking or holistic thinking. Yeah, that, that kind of way yeah. To put it. Yeah. And I think all of the teams here work that way, which is something that was quite neat to me coming from some more very siloed siloed organizations. Yeah. yeah. That's the one I picked. Was context not control? I think I guess a specific action that you could take off of that is explaining business context to engineers. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of companies kind of uh, isolate the engineers into engineering organizations and then have their business organizations. But, uh, you know, I think one of the things I appreciate about context not control is, like, engineers are really smart people. They can understand and learn some of these business concepts and stuff. And, uh, like, one of the things that happens for every new employee at Netflix, like, is, uh, I think we call it New Employee College. Uh, yeah. And it's it's like a day of training, and it's like a crash course in business and yeah. how our business works. And like I, I thought, I find that so valuable because I think I, like I've hired a couple new people, and after they come out of that training, it's like okay, like you understand the impact of your actions much much better. And I think that business context that's missing can help fill a lot of gaps of. What impact am I as an engineer giving to the company, and what what is the ramifications of my actions and the consequences of my actions to the business? Well, I've been saying this more often lately. It's like engineers are great problem solvers. I mean, that's what you give an engineer a problem to solve. And and I can remember uh, like uh, I had a friend telling me this that uh, he worked at a startup, and he made an engineering decision, and he got like fifty 
or some of the, you know, halfway through implementing that. And then somebody came on the business side and was like, don't, don't worry about that. Just go back to this other thing. And he was very, very angry about that. And it turns out that two weeks later, they found out that the company was a month away from not meeting payroll. And so if he had known that, he wouldn't have bothered on this whole other thing. And it's, it's the thing where you were talking about the kind of the business silo and then the engineering silo. It's like engineers, if they know the trade-offs, like maybe I should work on pushing these other bits out that might be more important than making a pretty whatever tool because the company may not be here next month. Like they will make that decision if they have the data, but a lot of times that gets shielded because it's like you can't deal with it. You, you know, you'll freak out if you know, know that, have that data. So I really empathize with the people who are at companies that they, they want the more DevOps culture. It's them, on the boots on the ground people, not the managers, mm-hmm. right? And so that's where I feel like they can't add that because they don't have the business. That's the whole point, right? And you, right. The, you can't necessarily make that change. So some more of the valuable stuff is having them, how they can change their day to affect other people. And that's where this, this context of control, it becomes this, it becomes a little viral once you start explaining. Just like um, if you've ever played the game of five whys, you should never just play the game of five whys without telling people that you're going to play the game of five whys, right? So Otherwise you kind of like, sound like an asshole. Every why? single time. Why? Yeah. Why? Why do you want to get rid of that checkbox? Or why do you want that checkbox to have three states? Right. Why? Why do you want... Oh, because of that. And then you figure out the real problem. Because right. usually there is an underlying problem that you're not getting enough context to, to solve and stuff. Right. So it's just like the game of five whys, but the context of control is very something where you can explain to your manager or your peers on other teams of like, put it, you know, it's, it's sort of like verb noun, like you say context, you know, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but this is what I have to deal with and stuff. And hopefully that can propagate through the organization. Well, so I, well it's a way to uh, acculturate empathy. I mean, if, if somebody knows what you're dealing with. Well, I think it's also accountability as well, right? If you can't explain why you should do something, like you should really ask yourself, yeah, well, should we be doing that? <laughs> right? I uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about uh, actually some of the specifics of the tooling because we had some kind of interesting questions about that. And before we get to that, we actually will pause for a station identification break. Actually, it turns out that the conversation with the Netflix panel was so engaging that it made sense to split it into two episodes. And of course, in this uh, first segment, we've talked a lot about the culture around how Netflix does what it does. And in the second segment, we will talk more about the tooling, the technology, and some of the uh, reasons behind the decisions that were made at Netflix. So that'll be the next episode of The Ship Show, along with a DevOps Dear Abby segment. So from San Francisco, all by myself, this is Paul Reed signing off. I and the rest of the crew will see you all in a couple of weeks.